to episode four of Librarians Allowed, an independent monthly podcast by librarians for librarians, presented by the Academic and Special Libraries section of the Library Association of Ireland. I'm your host, Laura rooney Ferris. My guest this month is really one of the real superheroes of the Irish library community. Aoife Lawton is the systems librarian for the Health Service Executive. She's the developer and manager of the Lennis Irish Health Repository and has been a pioneer of the open access movement in Ireland. She's also a very active member of the Health Science Libraries Group, uh, a regular conference presenter, a researcher and an author. And she's just published a new book titled The Invisible Librarian, A Librarian's Guide to Increasing Visibility and Impact. Uh, I met up with Aoife this week and we chatted about her career to date, um, about the development of Lennis and the importance of open access publishing, about her interest in raising visibility and impact of librarians and how that led to her developing the book. Uh, so hi, Aoife Lawton, uh, the famous Aoife Lawton. Um, <laughs> welcome to Librarians Allowed and thanks very much for joining me and uh, being the first guest of 2016. You're very welcome, Laura. Thanks very much for inviting me to talk. Yeah, it's great to have you. Um, so just to get started, do you want to talk a little bit about how you started out in your librarian journey? What was it that got you interested in librarianship to start out with? Yeah, um, I suppose we all have different journeys that bring us to librarianship. I wasn't one of those people who always wanted to be a librarian or that knew anything particularly about the profession, to be honest. Um, I started out, I finished college in 1996, kind of a golden era in Ireland where there was just jobs aplenty and anyone could do whatever they wanted to do. It was a very different time then. So... I had gone for an interview for IBM, which I got for tech support of all things, and I really I knew nothing about computers yeah. back did you then. Do European studies. Yeah. So um, you know anyone who did European studies, my era, had this notion that we'd all end up working in the European Union and having fantastic jobs. Yeah. That really didn't happen for any of us. So we all took very diverse career paths. Um, so anyway, I also applied for a master's in journalism in DIT, mm-hmm. and uh, I got the job offer in IBM, and I got the uh, an offer also for, to do the course. So it, mm-hmm. I came to kind of a crossroads immediately after graduating, but... The decision was pretty easy because I kind of thought, listen, I need to start earning some money now, you know. Yeah. I, I've done my, my studying, so I decided to go with the job. And uh, it was really interesting um, doing technical support, learning everything from the ground up about computers, hardware and software mm. from the absolute beginning. And the training that we were given was just second to none. We were so professional, not just in terms of learning about technology, but also learning about you know, customer service. Mm-hmm. Uh, with those that those training days I got in IBM stood to me for the rest of my career, mm-hmm. and you know I would advise people uh, to try new career pathways. You know, especially starting out because 
those big multinationals give you excellent training. Yeah, uh, particularly customer service, they do that. Yeah, really well. it's hard to get on anywhere else. Yeah. But we were, I was in a kind of a lucky group as well. We were in uh, group number three, we were called. So we got to go to the States and they sent us over there for training in North Carolina in the Research Triangle, it's called, in Raleigh. Mm -hmm. So we spent three weeks over there learning about um, everything about the industry and uh, meeting kind of the hotshots of IBM and the, the really young gurus that were developing amazing systems back then. So it was a fantastic uh, job. It was on a stress level between one to ten, I'd say it was probably nine. Mm. It was very, very stressful. Uh, it was a call centre. We were open 365 days a year, um, 24 hours. So I got to work night shift a lot of the time. Um, so I suppose the reason that I was working there is because I had languages, I had French and German. Mm. So I was put on those lines and uh, taking calls from people who spoke French or German from all over the world at all hours of the morning. And uh, also you could, I remember, you know, I'd have a headset on and you'd get a call coming in going, French call, German call, English mm -hmm. call. So you should swap your language immediately as well as, um, you know, the technical element of yeah. going in to explain to somebody how to, I don't know, fix their modem or whatever it was. So anyway, I'm going on a long, long-winded path. <laughs> uh, yeah, well and it's path. a really different use of, of your language as well, because yeah. you know, speaking the language is one thing, being able to talk about computer problems in another language new. is a whole other set of vocabulary that Absolutely. you don't usually get to use, even if you have a bit of a language skill. So what happened was, anyway, I was on the French line at night time, it was about three o'clock in the morning, and myself and another girl got talking, obviously in the middle of the night, because mm -hmm. the, the countries that are awake are few and far between at that time. And she, both of us kind of agreed, this, this isn't what we want to do long term. And she yeah. said to me, you know, I used to work in UCD in the architectural library. And it was such a nice place to work and such a great job and mm. so rewarding. Would you think about that? I could really see you working in a library. I, I was kind of going, oh, something never even crossed my mind. But then I thought, you know, maybe she's on to something here and I'll look into it. So I looked into it and the courses in UCD. And you had to get experience, and so I applied to Fingal County Council, and they were delighted to take me on. So suddenly, I saw a way out of this kind of yeah. high stress environment, and it it was great. So I worked in Blanchestown in the public library over the summer, and then began the the diploma in library information studies in UCD in September, mm. and. Uh, I haven't really looked back then. Yeah, I, I think really what drove me into that profession, not so much that it was a very stressful environment, but also almost from an ethical point of view. You know, for, on the one hand, you're helping people with their problems, mm -hmm. you know, which was great, but you're also making a huge profit for a global multinational. So I, that's not what, yeah, what I wanted to do with my life. The ultimate focus of multinational is yeah, the, the profit. Line. Yeah. Um, and we were reminded all the time that we were a, a loss-making entity because we were a tech mm -hmm. call centre. We weren't so actually making... you for a life of librarianship. Yeah, it is. Because I, I thought, well, actually, no, my value system isn't mm -hmm. there. I want to do something um, that has meaning and value, and librarianship does, mm -hmm. and particularly working in the public se service too. You know, so the ethos of the public sector, even though we get a real bashing constantly mm. we are actually trying to help people 
at the end of the day. But I think that's the ethos of all librarianship as well. It is. What type of environment. Oh, definitely. Even if you are in a corporate setting, I agree. your bottom line isn't about, you know, you're not a profit-making yeah. sector of the organisation, even if you are in an organisation whose oh, you're dead primary right. focus yeah. is, is on profit generation. <clears throat> Yours usually isn't. It's on, you have, you know, your clients that you work with and their information and their information needs. Yeah, it's kind of a helping priority. profession, really. Everything else yeah. is sort of secondary to, to that, to your user needs. Yeah. So when you got into UCD, did, it, did the course differ a lot from what you expected, having not really known much about librarianship? Not really. I mean, I remember doing, you had to do an interview. I don't know if they still do that to get onto the course because it was really popular. And um, I remember Bob Pierce interviewed me, Lord have mercy on him. And, uh, you know, the minute he heard, basically the minute they knew I was working in, in IBM and tech, in a technical environment, they're like, you're yeah. on, we, we need you. They could see, foresee at that stage mm-hmm. in the mid-90s, technology was going to revolutionise libraries, mm-hmm. which it did and continues to do today. So um, it was great to be on the course because... In a way, I had a huge advantage over a lot of people yeah. because people were struggling with PCs and uh, connecting to the internet and, and things. And uh, so I ended up being a tutor there and helping out in the computer lab and uh, helping all of the other students. So it would have been around access. the time where libraries were really starting to change. Mm. Think about kind of mid to late nineties. It's where there was still a lot of old school kind of practices, but yeah, the, the new processes and the impact of technology was really beginning to hit. So I can imagine that you were coming in with that type of experience just at exactly the right time. Yeah, I was lucky, as, as I said, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, we were still using the dial-up modems. I mean, oh, it was yeah. painful, the, the slowness of it. I mean, people just take it completely for granted today, mm-hmm. uh, 4G and broadband and connectivity. Um, but back then, it was pretty painful. And it's not even that long ago, really, when you think about no. it. Well, I guess it's a decade ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But not really that. No, it's longer than that. What I saying? The, the, yeah. the pace of change in yeah. that period of time. Yeah. So where did you go from, from UCD then when you finished? What was um, the next step? When I finished UCD, um, there was a tiny ad in the paper for a, a librarian who had some technical skills and it was a small startup company mm. in Dublin. And I thought, this is me. I'm going to go for this. So it was an Irish, a Belgian company that had Irish people working for them and the Irish person wanted to set up an, an Irish office yeah. here. And it was a library management system supplier. They supplied a system called Amicus, which uh, was a huge system at the time, very suitable for national libraries and mm-hmm. consortia libraries, university libraries and things like that. So anyway, I started working there. I worked there for about three years, did a lot of traveling all over the world, um, was essentially a library vendor so it was a different mm-hmm. side to the industry and um, went to trade shows, gave presentations, um, worked in Hungary and Spain in um, Oman, uh, just working with librarians actually in mm-hmm. different special and academic and national libraries doing all kinds of really specialised projects. Very interesting times. Um, Hungary in particular, they were developing Hunmark, the Hungarian version oh. of Mark. And I was trying to get that to work on our Amicus system. And the Amicus system was actually, like in hindsight, ahead of its time. It was originally developed by the National Library of Canada. Mm. And it was in use by the National Library of Australia. And they had a huge consortium in Australia that used that system. And we had another uh, system called LibriVision, 
which is a discovery tool and we had that back in the 90s mm. using the Z39.50 protocol and we didn't realise I suppose the potential and power of that system because yeah. people are using discovery tools today as if it was something new but actually it's been around. The audience. Yeah, I don't think the, the library databases were as advanced as they are now. Interoperability wouldn't have been there for it to work really Well, it didn't work very well, actually, mm. but um, there wasn't enough um, databases. You know, the bibliographic databases that we use today weren't, they were still kind of on CD-ROMs. They weren't web-based. So, um, but to make a long story short, very unfortunately, that company folded. Mm. And uh, even the, the Belgian wing of it closed down, it was a university-led initiative, so it was developed by the Catholic University of Leuven in Belgium, okay. and they had really developed the technology. But I suppose because they weren't profit-focused enough, yeah. it, it had to close, and it was such a shame, because um, our biggest competitor at the time was um, Ex Libris, mm. who are now one of the, one of the global yeah. leaders, and really, I think, Elias was the name of the company. We could have been there um, if circumstances uh, were different, mm. you know. But I mean, it was a fantastic experience. So I learned everything from uh, the vendor point of view. But really, when in my job as a librarian, I was working with librarians alongside librarians, and I could see um, their challenges through in their context mm. by working side by side by some really fantastic librarians, you know, and uh, after that then I went to work, when I came back to Ireland, went to work for um, this Guru Nursing in Clansilla, Daughters of Charity, mm -hmm. so it was kind of an intellectual disabilities, that was my first introduction to health science libraries. Mm. It's a really radical change in a Big change, direction. yeah, and um, I was completely hooked, I mean I think once you work in healthcare, very hard to work anywhere else. Mm. Because you're back to, I suppose, what got me out of IBM in the first place, value-based organisations. Mm. And I know that from working in a health environment, you're definitely making a difference. It might be just a small difference, but every one of us that works in a health organisation is yeah. contributing something. Um, so having worked there for, I think, six months, then I got the job here in, uh, at the time, it was the Eastern health shared services now it's the HSE and mm. I haven't moved since well it's been through a lot of change and expansion oh, and development yeah yeah I mean actually on the 2nd of January 2016 I've been in my job 14 years mm. I'm, I'm not sure if that's that's a good or a bad thing but here I am well in an organization that changes <laughs> so much oh yeah I can't so, imagine there were ever very long periods of time where everything stayed the same I don't think I ever stood still as a librarian. In mm -hmm. fact, if I had, we'd be shut down by now, all yeah. of us. Um, none of us stood still. Anyone who works in any library can't afford to stand still. Yeah. It's an evolving profession. The organisations we all work in are changing. Um, in healthcare, the pace of change is just accelerating at a phenomenal speed, mm -hmm. constantly. As you know yourself, Laura, yeah. um, it's really hard to keep up. And but you have to have to push yourself and evolve and survival of the fittest really. And we're you know we're we're one of the first places when cuts are 
mm. being sought or yeah. justifications of services are, are being done. Yeah, uh, that's I suppose. So we need to be ahead of the curve and kind of almost proving our worth before we're ever asked about it. Yeah, I think one of the problems we've had is we just haven't had investment really. We haven't had any recruitment since uh, 2007. Mm. You know, um, that's a huge problem. I think our biggest problem today is lack of resources, lack of new staff, uh, mm. new librarians desperately need new people. Just maintaining service. services when there's no continued investment and you're actually dealing with mm-hmm. loss of, of Yeah, we've all been forced... Resource. All of the library staff in the agency have been forced to upskill themselves, mm-hmm. you know, rapidly. And everyone luckily has that sense of uh, continuing professional development, sense of responsibility as a librarian to keep your skills up to date. Mm-hmm. And we just have all, you know, invested in our own CPD. And that's why things like getting involved with the academic and special libraries group or the health science libraries group library association silip any type of professional outfit is so important mm. uh, whether you're a solo librarian or working as part of a team at least those professional structures are in place to you know help you on your journey yeah. to betterment it puts it gives you access to a wider network as well because it's it's the yeah. sense of you know a backup system for people that you can call on you, you may be in an environment where you have, are very, very stretched in terms of resources or have very few people that you can call on in your own direct working environment yeah. who can help out with things, but having access to other librarians. Yeah, I mean, it's great. We have a tendency to kind of row in and help each other out or offer advice. Definitely. I mean, I think in Ireland, the library community are very supportive uh, of each other and we can all pick up the phone to somebody and talk mm. through a problem if we need to um, or find a solution most of the time very easily either through email or pick up the phone as I said or you know um, everyone's there to help each other and that's go- is the same for new professionals too I would hope that they could come in and, and talk to any one of us and not be you know afraid to do that mm. because that's part of our ethos uh, as librarians also is, is that collaborative spirit and sharing information, knowledge, expertise, all of that. We tend to feed well off that too, you know, if you're not around other librarians for quite a long time and then mm. suddenly you kind of re, re-expose yourself to your own community again, it just reinvigorates you, you pick up all these new things, new ways of yeah. working, ideas, yeah. just just kind of sends you, it sends you back into your workplace just rejuvenated that's it exactly with a whole new perspective yeah. of, you know, a solution to a problem you go out there to the mm. library community with the problem and they're very good at giving solutions it's true I mean sometimes you can be so close to a problem that you can't figure it out mm. and getting outside of your environment and outside of your comfort zone sometimes can really clarify things and bring clarity to the problem the solution mm-hmm. even if the clarity is is just you're not the only person who's ever had this problem before yeah and there might not be any easy solution to mm-hmm. it and you, you might not come up with a way out of it but yeah you're at least comforted in the knowledge that plenty of other people have been in the same position yeah absolutely it kind of validates your decision one way yeah. or another or maybe it's something you shouldn't be you know uh, pursuing because perhaps you don't have the resources to do it. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes you have to make those tough calls and those tough decisions. That, hang on a second, this sounds really fantastic. 
but is it worth pursuing? Do we have the resources to put into that particular project right now or can we you know, do it later in the year or next year or can we make a business case and get somebody in mm-hmm. for a few months? And those are the sort of tough calls that when you are in that resource stretched mm-hmm. kind of situation, those are the kind of calls you have to make yeah. where you've really got to decide where to focus your energy. I think that's one of the hardest things at the moment. It has been for the mm-hmm. last number of years that's, I suppose, one of the reasons I went down the repository route with Lennis, the Irish Health Repository. Mm. So, yeah, you're really responsible for yeah. the development of Lennis. How did that start? Yeah, it has a long history. Um, I don't know how far back I'll go, but basically, to summarise, <laughs> yeah, I suppose we ha- I saw an opportunity. I attended um, an information session in Trinity College Dublin. Biomed Central were over from the UK and they were talking about open repository. I was just fascinated by this and thought, wow, this is a solution, this is an answer, this is what I've been looking for. Mm. That coupled with a presentation I was at by Cersei Dynix, who were um, vlogging this Hyperion system. Mm. And um, I think somebody was there from the DPP office and they had implemented it and they had put all their court judgments Mm. on it and it was basically a web-based um, Windows Explorer. So it was like file management on the web. Mm-hmm. But I could see immediately um, this is a great solution for the health services. So in 2004, before the HSE formed, there was talk of all of the former health board websites you know, shutting down. Mm-hmm. So I could see, well, we need to preserve all of the information, the board minutes, the board publications, before they just go offline and are lost mm. forever. This is a huge corporate body of knowledge that we need to protect, preserve as librarians and mm. make sure so we can find it in the future. So myself and Ben, are you my line manager here, made a presentation to the former board of the Eastern Regional Health Authority and uh, put together screenshots of Hyperion, yes. that was the system at the time, and basically did a business case for why we should invest in this. And they all agreed. So got the system. It was easier to just get it as an add-on to our existing library management system mm-hmm. than to go out for the open repository at the time. So we did, I went that route. And then we, we piloted it with the help boards in our eastern region at the time. But like within a few months, I knew this is bigger than the pilot's going to work. Yeah. Started digitize lots of material from the Department of Health because the Department of Health library has been shut for God knows how long now mm-hmm. and uh, there was a huge um, library of reports that really were inaccessible to anybody and I knew we have to digitise this and make it accessible Department of Health agreed yeah. and uh, it's been an ongoing long process but migrated the system to the open repository eventually in 2008, went live with Lennis, as we know it today, in 2009, February. And it's been basically going from strength to strength, um, albeit on a very small budget and a small group of staff, dedicated staff, who, I think who believe are, in it. I think really surprised when they discover just how few people are really behind mm. the back end of, of Lennis. 
I know there isn't it's a huge team behind it that actually it is just you know it's you and a few other people. A few other people, yeah, a few other dedicated librarians now as, as other organisations mm. come on board and, and have their own collections within Lannis, but yeah. the overall management of it it's a very small dedicated team. Yeah, I suppose we see it here in Dr. Stevens Library as core mm. now to to our to our work. So it's it's been given priority and the sustainability of Lennox has always been at the forefront of our strategic plans that mm. we make for it. So one of the ways we, we maintain it, it into the future is through this distributed network of librarians, um, of which you're a member of the Lennox Working Group, which we mm. set up. You know, that's, that's a really great group of people. We only meet twice a year, but it gives librarians an insight into repositories that may not be able to set up their own repository. Yeah. It um, makes the whole system sustainable because those librarians can keep on top of publications from their own organisations. And it's also great just for networking and keeping mm -hmm. in touch with other librarians. So that has really helped the sustainability of the project. Mm -hmm. But open access publishing is so important to uh, the future of knowledge, really. Mm. Um, particularly in healthcare. Particularly in healthcare, I think in other disciplines too, though, mm. in the humanities as well, and uh, you know, in physics and I don't know, marine biology and yeah, no, there is, agriculture. There is where you know, where it isn't beneficial. Yeah, but yeah. The, the case is always very easy to make and very um, clear to be seen mm. from a management perspective in, in healthcare that, that open access just makes sense. It totally makes sense. A lot of people get it. A lot of people still don't get it. Um, so that awareness around open access and the benefits of open access and the, is still an ongoing kind of task. I think it's the, the mechanics of it, I find, are what can be tricky. For it's very tricky. Like the, 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 the big notion of it, people get immediately, obviously. Taxpayer-funded yeah. projects, taxpayer-funded research, particularly in healthcare, should be available. Mm -hmm. um, should be openly accessible. Yeah. Um, but it's more the process of when someone goes to submit an article or when someone is doing a piece of research themselves of what the steps they need to take are to make sure that their work is available in open access format. I think that's where mm -hmm. it begins to get tricky. It's those logistical steps. You're dead right, Laura. Um, particularly green open access, yeah. which is what we advocate for, is very complicated. It gets down to the journal level, not just the publisher, mm -hmm. the actual journal. Um, you have to go back and forth, back and forth with the publisher, and it's mm -hmm. incredibly complicated for the most part. Uh, some journals, some publishers better than others. Yeah. Um, but I do find that we have to spend a good bit of time helping people yeah. uh, to try and get their author accepted manuscript up there and gold open access course is much easier much straightforward just pay the fee and it's there but it's difficult if you work in a, um, an organisation where there isn't a huge pot of funding for no research funding. or yeah. you're dealing with research, a research group where they all come from different places yes. and maybe by the time they're thinking about submission their research funding is gone and they can no longer go back to their funder and yeah. say, well, actually, we now need an additional mm. pot of funding to be able to make the research open access. Yeah. So it's about, I always find it's about getting in really, really early in the process. Absolutely, and raising awareness about it because people just don't think about it till it's too late. But it's amazing how many people would you know ask here for an article that they have written that they don't have access to. Yeah. 
because they've signed away their copyright rights and uh, suddenly it dawns on them, oh, I don't even have access to my own content. Mm. You know, which is pretty incredible when you think about it. Yeah. But, but you've done so much, certainly even just in the time that I've been involved with Lennis or having access to it in raising awareness of, first of all, what Lennis is, but on a larger scale of open access and what it is, how it works, why it's important, mm -hmm. and encouraging people to publish in open access format. You've really been very responsible for raising that knowledge. Oh, well, thanks, Laura. I mean, yeah, I just find it very exciting and uh, interesting and uh, an evolving space, a moving space. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's just um, the possibilities of open access for human discovery, sharing, um, knowledge are just endless and when you transfer that to open data it gets even more interesting mm. and linking data with research and making all of that openly accessible has profound really implications for us as a human race mm. um, so it's it's exciting and it's an interesting area of librarianship that we can all work towards I think and and help others understand the benefits of it so yeah that was one area that um, I suppose we had to we prioritise here Dr Stevens mm -hmm. open access in Lannis and uh, it worked for us um, it was a bit of a gamble I suppose it's hard to know what the, what the future is going to yeah. hold but it seems like uh, you, know, you, you kind of had invested in the right thing at the right time it took mm -hmm. a little while for other people maybe to come on board and see where it was going, but now it's something that people are behind. Well, certainly the universities in Ireland, you know, mm. they're ahead to, you know, Maynooth University in particular, yeah. big, big advocates, and uh, Suzanne is great there, you know, Neve Brennan Trinity, and Yvonne Desmond's doing very exciting things in DIT, librarian mm. as publisher. Yeah. Um, really, there's a lot of excellent repository managers slash librarians in Ireland mm. with huge expertise. I mean helping people from other countries in Europe also set up their repositories and giving them advice. Yeah. So we have a lot of expertise in Ireland around this whole area, in the, both in the university sector and the special sector. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. Mm. Um, so how much would you say that, is that a, a very significant part of your job now or what are the other elements of your role? It's a pretty significant part. Um, you know, I was listening to Jane Burns' podcast here this morning. <laughs> she was saying, you learn something new every day, and it's so true. Um, I've kind of, there's just so many other things that we could be doing. It's, it's hard at times to, uh, to decide which ones to go with. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, I've, I've involved in lots of other projects here, lots of national projects. And uh, talking about management seems to keep coming up. So one of the projects where I'm involved in at the moment is something called PPPGs, Policies, Procedures, Protocols and Guidelines. We're looking at systems for that. And uh, that's right throughout the health service. So that's an interesting one. I mean, I get to work with uh, multidisciplinary teams mm. on that and get to bring my librarianship skills to the fore in, within that context. And it's great because people don't actually realise a lot of the time what kind of skills we have. Yeah. So getting involved in team teams like that are, is really important mm -hmm. uh, to raise our visibility and uh, to just 
give people an insight into what it is that we do because a lot of people don't really understand don't until what we do. they're involved in a project or they yeah. have a direct relationship yeah. um, in working on something with a librarian or somebody who has a library background yeah. they don't see the bigger picture on what it is we do so it um, seems like that's a new kind of development over the last you know, 10, 15 years of that sort of embedded approach to yeah, the embedded approach works very well. Taking the skills and going out into your organisation and going out into different projects and just injecting that into a d- totally different type of environment. Yeah, I think in healthcare in particular, that has been a, an approach that has worked around mm. the world for people. I suppose the only danger with it is that you become so embedded that you get nicked you know, out of the library service and lost yeah, as a resource you can be to, to your library team. a lot of different things. And suddenly you, you're kind of moving into almost a different profession. Mm. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that, but... Um, it does cause a little bit of identity crisis. Mm. There's always the constant weighing up of, well, is, is this something beneficial that I should be getting involved in? Yeah. in is, is there a strategic reason to be doing this? Or am I just pulling myself out of the place where I feel I should be putting investment back into, which is the library or the information service? Is it, is it going to benefit that in the long term? Or is it going to take me away from it? Yeah, that's exactly the question to ask. Um, it's an easy answer if it's a national project and it's, yeah. it's going to have big implications. If it's just a small local project, it's different. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, each time we get asked, you know, can you work on this project, we have to kind of weigh up the pros and cons and the benefits. Mm-hmm. Usually, though, it's it's a pretty easy task to answer but it's important to do that and not just say yes to every single project that comes along it's important to figure out what it is that you or you as a service are getting out of it too like what skills will you be able to come back to like the library information service with Mm -hmm. having been involved in this project or what new relationships will you have formed that will then benefit you in the long term absolutely and i think a lot of it is about just um getting to know people and you know Raising awareness of what we do and, as you said, building relationships with different disciplines, mm. you know, because you, there would be nurses, OTs, speech and language therapists, managers, quality improvement people, mm. right throughout all the strands of the organisation. So, I mean, that's a benefit in itself, just kind of outreach, I suppose. Yeah, And these and will all be people who will move on into, you know, they may very well end up in very senior positions and in decision-making roles so it's always good to have had some sort of relationship with them yes absolutely some of them are pretty senior actually so that helps too yeah you know when they go to make decisions about who will be involved with new projects and where funding will be going it helps to have some it's almost like a visual cue for them that oh i remember you know so and so worked with us on that project and they work in the library and you know the next time a big project comes along they said well you know, the librarian on that project helped us with this. I think you should go and talk to them. But, I mean, we'd l- I'd like to get to the stage where the involvement of a librarian becomes like a quality checkpoint in a system or an organisation. You know, we talk about evidence-based practice in healthcare a lot. And that's really become sort of embedded into healthcare and healthcare practices. And yeah, I mean, it's been around... It's been around, what, 20 years more? Very much front and centre now in a way that seems it to may be. not have been maybe 20 or 15 years yeah, ago. Have you noticed that? Because I have uh, yeah, noticed and, there and seems because to be. I work in a healthcare environment, yeah. we're not um, a patient, um, mm-hmm. we're not a direct inpatient service, and yet the 
embedding of an evidence-based approach is incredibly fundamental to what we now do at a strategic level. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I've noticed that in the last maybe two or three years, it seems to be more popular. Yeah. Um, it seems to be very popular and uh, it's becoming more embedded as a common daily workflow process that mm. people go through. But librarians still aren't part of that, are not a mandatory part of that workflow. And I think that we should be. So I think if, if people are talking about an evidence-based approach, mm. um, there needs to be a librarian involvement in that approach yeah. somewhere. And even every time we see that, you know, in a policy document, in, mm -hmm. in anything, in our organisations, we need to be the ones kind of waving our hands, going, that's where I come in. Yeah, this that's our role. You were we directly role talking about me there. That That's where I help you. This is my role. Yeah. Let me take that part of this and do it for you because it's what we do well. That's it. And I think uh, we're getting there, but it's a, it's a slow process. Mm. And it's, it's a bit about proof of concept. So until we get involved at those higher levels in those strategic documents and people at the higher echelons understand, oh, that person actually um, produced the evidence behind that mm -hmm. or assisted the team in producing the evidence behind that or summarising or, or whatever it is, then we get to a position where um, the value of our profession becomes elevated and understood, visible, Mm. and um, counted, I suppose. So visibility really is, is the key, and that brings us on to your, <laughs> yeah. your latest, uh, latest endeavour, your, yeah. your recently published book, um, The Invisible Librarian. And mm -hmm. I think all librarians, when they see that title, just immediately understand what you mean. Uh, yeah, We've I all hope, been there. <laughs> I hope it resonates with people. I mean, I think, it does. Yeah. I think, I mean, we all kind of know that we have value to bring to our organisations, we all know that we bring value to our organisations on a daily basis, but whether people in our organisations can see that, mm. whether that value is visible to them and understood by them is a different real question. I suppose I was just interested in the whole theme of visibility. I suppose kind of because of the Shelley report, you know. Yeah. The executive summary has three kind of recommendations. Um, build our evidence base, identify champions, raise our visibility, and invest in staff and service development. And I just got interested in visibility as a mm -hmm. team. To me, I wanted to examine it in more detail because I feel that a lot of the work that we do as librarians is misunderstood uh, not accredited to us or mm -hmm. it's just not seen by people it can get consumed into other things like even yeah. if you are involved in a larger project mm -hmm. somehow your contribution just gets swallowed up in the bigger picture yeah to a point where it's by the time the end product is delivered your contribution is not recognized yeah to the same extent as maybe other sectors exactly um it's, it's about becoming that that quality checkpoint I was talking about earlier, um, you know, people wouldn't produce a report with statistics, perhaps without running it by a statistician. They wouldn't produce mm -hmm. a clinical report on epidemiology without running it by, you know, a specialist in public health. Mm -hmm. 
So when we talk about evidence-based practice, there should be, you know, in an ideal world, in an ideal health system, um, an information specialist working yeah. in healthcare or a librarian, whatever you want to call yourself, needs to become part of that mm. I mean, a positive is process. the National Clinical Effectiveness Committee and their you know, the involvement of librarians in yeah. guidelines. And I think that's been a very positive step for librarians and the yeah. awareness at that level that if you're going to be producing evidence-based guidelines, then you really need to have a librarian involved in the process because yeah. to, to even to see that recognition of systematic searching and that the approach that we apply to literature searching that 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 we need to be involved in this process that that in itself is a very specific mm -hmm. strand of the process of putting together a guideline that actually a librarian is the person who is best suited to do it you're absolutely right and it is has been a fantastic mm -hmm. initiative really important for librarians working in healthcare in Ireland and you know a model for other European countries mm. to follow. It's great that we have the support of the Department of Health. Um, and I think it's at ministerial level for those clinical guidelines yeah. for librarian involvement. It's been very positive for librarians working in the health system and, and the HSE. And um, it's about translating that process to other areas. Mm. Um, not too much, I suppose, or we just become inundated. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that has set the standard, I suppose. The National Clinical Effectiveness Guidelines has set, set the standard for other departments and organisations to look at. Yeah, I think other um, organisations in, um, in healthcare need to be aware of, well, they may not be producing documents to that kind of rigid level. Mm -hmm. They are working on evidence-informed material, which yeah. also should include, you know, if they have access to a librarian, yeah, that, that that's someone they should be inviting into these processes. I think there's an assumption that if you're not doing something like a clinical guideline, that yeah. it's not quite as it doesn't need the same kind of rigorous approach. Mm -hmm. And so maybe you don't need a librarian involved. Whereas actually, really, we should be the ones saying, well, we, yeah, even if it's not quite at that level, we still have a very important part to play in in showing you how to do systematic searching and making sure that you don't miss something mm -hmm. and just taking this part of the process away from you. Yeah, I mean, certainly we can help people navigate to the right evidence and you know help them appraise it even. But um, but the visibility, uh, um, I think, is is the key um, mm -hmm. with your with your book. Um, I like the way that you really show the diversity of the profession like the the case studies and the people who have given interviews in the book and just the the different environments that they work in and the different scenarios that are presented mm -hmm. in the book it yeah, really shows how much is going on and that everyone is under the same level of pressure yeah i mean i suppose i wrote it uh, at a time where uh, there's a lot of uh, there's an economic downturn, people mm -hmm. are struggling, the resources are few, and a lot of librarians across the world have been affected by this. I, lot, I had a lot of fun, of course, doing this. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the best part was interviewing the librarians, um, using Skype, and just meeting people in person, too. It's such a diverse profession, um, from the school librarians to the public librarians to mm -hmm. special 
academic health law um it's a fascinating profession to work in you know it's great mm-hmm. and um yeah the visibility team i think was one that unites us in a common quest to advance the profession improve our invisibility our visibility i should say mm-hmm. and uh you know make our impact known to the world. I mean, I was reading in, in the Silip magazine this week about the public libraries in, in the UK. There's yeah. real devastation going on there. So I'd like to encourage people to sign their um, petition. Yeah. My library, my right. They need to reach 10,000 signatories. Mm-hmm. So please, if you haven't signed it, get, you know, go up to the Silip website and sign it. Yeah. We've In the UK, there's... I think over a hundred public libraries closing per year for the past five years. Yeah, it's we're lucky here. Pretty that we staggering. Not seen that level of decimation, but if you look at the, the health libraries, there's yeah. taken quite a, a heavy hit in the last few years. Well, there's been and no. The libraries have really taken their. I think right across team, most yeah. sectors in our in all libraries, really in in Ireland and elsewhere, there's been. Mm-hmm the recession hasn't helped things um, there's been just lack of investment and eventually that sort of the long term effects of that are beginning to yeah. really show now but the visibility thing plays in there as well because it's if members of the public knew more about what it is we do if there was less mystification of what the process of librarianship is of what, what exactly we do behind closed doors of a library yeah. and stamp books all day there would be a greater outcry when libraries are closed there wouldn't be such an assumption well we can get all that online now it's fine we don't need mm-hmm. physical libraries anymore yeah. it's, it's e- it was easy for that to happen to us because people are still confused about what it is we do or they're still working to an outdated stereotyped mm. model of what it is a librarian does that bears no relationship at all to the day-to-day reality of the job. You're right. Um, there's so much we can do to improve that situation. Um, simple things like um, having visual infographics that immediately tell a passerby outside your library mm-hmm. what it is that you're doing. Um, so we're working on that here at the moment. Mm-hmm. So if nobody ever comes into the library, at least if they're walking by, they get a snapshot of what it is you're doing. Yeah. So things like that are really important. Um, becoming embedded in teams and showing people the skills that libra- librarians have is another way. Of course, I have a 10-step plan that I won't go into. But you have to buy the book. You have to get the book, plan. yeah. There's so many things we could do, you know. There's so, there are actually <clears throat> so many good ideas um, yeah. in the book that I've even started kind of dipping in and out of. It's very useful for when you are looking at doing, you know, your own strategic plan or mm. just looking at kind of even a yearly work plan of in, in, if you're adding increasing visibility onto your work plan, then there's just great... The key thing is to talk, talk to people yeah, and just get find, out and get find, some ideas. Find out what they want and what, what it is they're working on mm. and see how you can contribute to that. Philip um, <clears throat> also have an impact toolkit. Yeah. I think that was only launched last year, yeah. which I was looking at, and it's very easy to use, very manageable, and I think it's one that could be applied to any librarian or information setting. And they're not time-consuming to perform either. It's not like this is a, a rigorous evaluation. They're quite easy to work work through without having to invest massive amounts of time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but impact and raising your profile 
and showing, visibly showing people what it is that you're contributing to the organisation is now very, very key, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's not something you can put on the long finger. I think people really need to take this seriously and start showing your impact to your stakeholders, your communities, um, demonstrating it you know, as, as much as you can. Of course, social media is a great way of doing that too. Yeah, it's just I think librarians were very quick on the uptake with realising... Well, you in particular, Laura, and I, you're the guru. I don't know how much I was doing it for libraries. <laughs> yeah, no, Twitter is just such an empower, powerful mm. way of getting your message out there to a global audience. It's yeah. incredible. Um, there's so much you can learn from it. And I think it was Hugh Rundle in the book that said it's, it's the, his number one professional development tool mm. you know anyone that's not on Twitter as a librarian now is just crazy yeah there's just a whole wealth of conversation that you're missing out on yeah particularly yeah. if you work in a small library or you're a solo librarian mm-hmm. there's just this whole stream of you can just tap into expertise you can tap into yeah. immediately within a, a click of a mouse mm-hmm. and uh, you can't put a price on that it's just it's free it's easy to access and it's immediate so there's just no excuse left for those librarians not on Twitter, get on Twitter. Although I always feel quite bad at the notion of sort of forcing people to be on social media. If, if no. I think it's very important if you're not on it to have mm. very good justification for why. Yeah. If you have made a very clear decision that you do not want anything yeah. to do with any of these things, then stand by your choice, but just sure. know, know why you're doing it, but also know what the downside of that may be and that you're comfortable with that. Yeah, no. Some people have great, great arguments. Contrarian and uh, contrarian, and always saying, "Well, people have, you know, always have the option to, to not be doing these things." Of course, it's but all I about choice. You, yeah. Bear in mind, you will it will have an impact on your career and the type of information professional you can be. There, there may be things mm-hmm. that are limited to you if you turn your mind off to, to social media and to, to social communication channels. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's a choice that people make and I, I've met loads of librarians that aren't on it um, mm. and they have very good reasons why they're not on it and that's fine. Um, but I just think it's a very fast way of getting expert advice, you know, mm. a fast and free way of getting it. And there's always the argument that there's a lot of just, you know, useless chatter on there but it brings back, brings it back to a lot of the fundamentals of librarianship you know twitter is a great example of being able to show someone how to filter information how to find good sources how to validate what someone's saying how to look at the credibility of an argument and how to assess something very quickly and you have to make very quick decisions when you're following a story that's evolving on twitter about yeah. who this source is you know what their authority on the subject is whether they've got something to flog, you know, whether there's a bias there. So yeah, these are all the absolutely. things that we do with information anyway. It's just, this is a new way to be doing it. It's, it's a, a new, new channel place. of doing it. You're dead right. And I think there's huge opportunities there for librarians to get involved as social media experts within an organisation. You know, that could be a new p- career pathway for librarians. Yeah, and you can see a lot of librarians kind of stepping into that. We're certainly yeah. becoming people who are called on. Yeah, gurus. Yeah, I'd love to say I was, but I'm not. not I would never say I was a guru in anything, just because it sounds so awful. I know. Yeah, we have a section out there in the library for gurus. Um, you know, all those big books that uh, influence management and yeah. leadership, and all those hot topics. But um, a lot of very senior management people like that sort of stuff. They love it. Yeah, yeah. anything yeah. that can be boiled down to a simple formula. Exactly. Yeah. 
Uh, I think we all want. We, we can all buy into that. <laughs> there was an idea that there was a five-point plan we could follow and result in success. We'd all go for that. Absolutely, yeah. It doesn't always work that way. No. Mm. So what's your, your kind of, just to kind of wrap things up, what would be your, your main advice to anyone coming into the profession or to people working in it now, Is it particularly around increasing visibility? Um, obviously, read my book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Go ahead, get Facebook immediately. The Invisible Librarian. <laughs> um, no, but otherwise, have a look at my blog, mm-hmm. theinvisiblelibrarian.com, and you can pick up free tips there. And I'm always looking for new uh, librarians to add their voice to that because, you know, we all learn from each other. It's a growing profession. We learn new things all the time. We learn from each other. We learn from people outside of our profession. Mm-hmm. And that's something to keep in mind. Uh, you can learn so much from working in those teams with other disciplines. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can look at things through a different lens. And I think that's very important. Because at times we can be a bit insular. We can. Um, I think sometimes we're a little bit <coughs> guilty of having the arguments about increasing visibility within an echo chamber of just yeah, you're dead talking right. to yeah. ourselves and preaching so, to the choir. Very important for new professionals to you know get out there and get involved with projects that your stakeholders your communities are working on and get involved at the level where you are the one co-presenting at their conferences Mm -hmm. you know you're you're the person who is not just helping them put a poster together you want your name on it you know you're you're a co-creator now we're not the, the back office staff anymore so new librarians need to be um, counted uh, as an equal professional in a multidisciplinary team, not not the admin staff. I think that we were once seen as yeah. we are professionally qualified, and uh, we need to take the credit there where yeah. credit's due. Um, in healthcare, librarians often work in, on systematic reviews, so they need to be a co-author on it. You know, mm-hmm. if you've done the work, you've done all the searching, you've gathered all the evidence, sometimes you've screened it. Yeah, and that is a significant part of the process. It's a significant it's part of the systematic review. Hugely time-consuming and valuable and specialist. So the, you know, little things like having your, your name on the paper is important. Mm-hmm. And then the value of what you're doing becomes real and evident and visible to uh, the healthcare professionals that you work with. Um, for new professionals, building alliances, keeping in, in touch with your colleagues working in different areas. I think one thing about librarianship, and one thing I learned from doing the book actually, is to, that we don't share our expertise across the different areas of special librarianship. So mm. public libraries don't share their expertise with academic or special or school and vice versa. Yeah. There's not enough um, cross-fertilization of ideas, expertise. Mm. And the academic and special libraries are good at promoting that kind of uh, interaction. But... I think that, yeah, there are still... There's still a bit of work to be done. There are, are, are kind of gaps. I mean, school libraries are doing fascinating things. Public mm-hmm. libraries are doing amazing mm-hmm. things with their spaces and their exhibitions that they have on. There's just <clears throat> a huge wealth of knowledge um, in those libraries. And There's beginning to be a bit of a crossover now in the sense that you're seeing a lot more academic libraries and even special libraries mm-hmm. moving into things like exhibitions yeah. and you know, working on 
taking parts of their collections outside of the library so they can really draw in expertise from the public libraries who've been definitely that sort of space for quite a long time and have quite a good skill set around developing exhibitions and relationships like that. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm just so impressed with the knowledge that we have in Ireland mm-hmm. uh, amongst our library community that I wasn't, ha- I have to admit, aware of. Um, this huge expertise there in the different sectors, mm-hmm. in every single sector. Like even the school libraries, there's been two awards in Ireland, school library, librarian of the year, I think. Yeah. I mean, for such a small country to get that award yeah, twice, and such it's incredible. Small, even pool of librarians, because when Tiny. we talk about school librarians in Ireland, we're not saying that every school in the country has a librarian. Very, far from very it. Much yeah. the opposite, it's far yeah. from it. That is a very small cohort, cohort of librarians mm-hmm. who are working in schools. Yeah, so we've got, you know, basically, I think as I think it was Hugh Rundle that said it, VIP librarians here. Yeah. So it's great. They're on our doorstep. We need to talk to them mm-hmm. and uh, talk to each other a bit more from the different sectors. Even from healthcare, we, we, we do tend to talk to each other a lot and share our own expertise, but I'm mm-hmm. sure we have expertise to share with other sectors of librarianship too, maybe about working yeah. with different professional groups about finding the evidence and the evidence-based approach. I don't know if that's as an, as common a theme in other areas of librarianship as it is in the academic special. In, in the same way and health, as it yeah. is in health. <coughs> Excuse me. And yet the principles still apply. Mm. I think the principles would apply mm. to any sector of librarianship and that's something that health science librarians can bring to other areas, definitely. Mm. So, um, yeah, there's just so much we could be doing. It's, it's just infinite, the, uh, the, the opportunities and the possibilities and that's what makes librarianship so exciting and you're going to be talking um with Anne Madden at the SSL right. 2016 yeah. speaking again of well, we are the other two ways to, to communicate with the library community yeah we're working on that at, at the moment myself and Anne and, and you know there's a great bunch of of librarians working on that here bulletin um and it's a collaborative project that uh, we're bringing to kind of a big audience really and we want to learn new ways of disseminating it and making it more accessible it's a very interesting project it only began last year mm-hmm. uh, bottom-up approach which often is the best way yeah uh, kind of grassroots voluntary of course but we're bringing librarians together from different organizations with different areas of expertise mm-hmm. and we're pooling our knowledge and using it for the betterment of, you know, patients, healthcare professionals, health science librarians. And I think it's been a very worthwhile initiative and it's it's gonna grow from strength to strength. It's the start of a a new phase of health science librarianship because it's a model that I think can really work for other projects. This is perhaps just the beginning and my here colleagues are going oh no it's more work (laughs) but um it's it's a model uh, of working together that could work right across other sectors of librarianship um we have the tools at our disposal actually all you need now is an internet connection and a device Mm -hmm. and it's amazing what what can be achieved with those Uh, obviously you need a qualified librarian there that's it that's all you need um um, together we could we definitely achieve more yeah and again it's going back to that thing of drawing on our community mm-hmm. drawing from the strength of the, the knowledge of other librarians it is and i can see us um you know working with healthcare professionals then 
it's kind of the next step yeah. and involving them more in, in our in our projects mm-hmm. we're always going out looking for their projects but it's good to co-create and collaborate with other disciplines on work that we're doing mm-hmm. um, and that that's also a new new area that we can move into and it's been very successful um, I was reading about I think it's in France clinicians and health science librarians got together and created YouTube videos around PubMed and how to use it. Mm-hmm. And because they co-created it with clinicians, not just librarians, yeah. it, they got buy-in straight away and it became very successful. So, um, you know, e-learning is a big area that yeah. we could work on. But if you are going into creating tutorials and online um, e-learning modules, think about involving your audience in the co-creation of that Mm -hmm. because it seems to work better than just librarians doing it themselves and it shares a little bit of the burden as well absolutely with all the work yeah it makes sense from a number of perspectives it does yeah absolutely um so finally just to to wrap up where can people get your book because obviously that's what people need to do Um, once they've listened to this is go out and read your book okay so um it's on amazon it's a lot of it's on Google Books. If you're not sure if you want to buy it, you can, you know, read quite a <laughs> bit on there. I was kind of surprised myself. Sampler first have a sampler. Um, there's a link on my blog, I'm sure, theinvisiblelibrarian.com. And, and of course, there's a link on, um, along with the podcast on the ANSR. Thanks, Laura. And it's available from Elsevier Store as well. And I think I have a discount code if anybody wants to get in touch with me. Mm-hmm. Get it a bit cheaper. And thank you for for producing the book because it's actually quite a good example to give other people to this is what a librarian does these are the challenges that librarians face yeah so i'd like to at some point when i'm done with getting everything i i need to get out of it just hand it over to you know my boss or someone say if you've ever wondered what it is we do and why we can be so Uh. touchy (laughs) about yeah our job and why we take it so personally and why we feel challenged and stretched here, read this book. Just yeah, just everything. chapter one. They're not going to enjoy the rest of it, but I think chapter one yeah. is for the non-librarians out there. Mm. Yeah. Step into the shoes of a librarian. That's, that's what I wrote, who I wrote that chapter for. Yeah, yeah. and that's, that's what I want to end up doing with that. With what Great, Laura. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you so much for, for, for uh, joining me on Librarians Allowed. Thanks for putting it together. It's a great podcast. Oh, well done. Thanks again to Aoife for chatting to me and for just generally being such an all-round legend. If you haven't read Aoife's book yet, you really should remedy that by picking up a copy on uh, Elsevier or Amazon. Her blog, uh, theinvisiblelibrarian.com, also has some really good advice on ways to raise your own visibility. And Aoife will also be presenting at ASL 2016 on the HERE Health Librarians Collaborative Bulletin. If you haven't booked your place for ASL 2016, do it now. Between you and me, uh, places are pretty limited, almost sold out. So get yourself over to www.aslibraries.com and book your place now. You can also follow us on at ASLibraries for updates and news in the run-up to ASL 2016, which will take place on February 11th and 12th. Librarians Allowed is produced by Laura Wong Ferris. Music and additional editing are by Michael Ferris. Thank you.